What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of A Little More Good. Thanks for tuning into the show. My name is Dean. I'm here with my buddy, Zach. What's up? What's up, Dean? How's it going? Things are good. Life is good. We're into summer now. It feels like uh, what could go wrong, you know? Summer is a great time to be alive. I always forget. uh, We're here in in beautiful British Columbia, and I always forget... uh, about our rainy, dark winters that uh, we can complain about uh, once we hit the summer season. It's just the, the best place in the world once uh, once the clouds part and let us see where we live. Oh, man. Yeah. And I think that, you know, living in anywhere in like the Pacific Northwest, but in Vancouver, for us specifically, you really appreciate those summer months because we do. We get, it's no secret, we get rain you know, a fair share of rain and there can be months where it's like feels pretty gray and pretty wet. Um, and so when it is that spring summer season where the sun is out almost daily and you can just kind of plan on wearing just like shorts and t-shirt for most of the day, it's just, we cherish it here. The best. I was hanging out with a friend of the pod, Navi Gill recently and we were, uh, chatting about just the the peaks and valleys of you know personal evolution spiritual evolution personal development how there are highs and lows and um you know as society we just want the highs mm. but we we don't want the lows but it's the lows that um allow us to appreciate and experience and 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 embody those highs you know it's those lows are the biggest learning opportunities and uh we were just kind of having a laugh about it because in nature, there are the answers to all. Nature is perfectly how it's supposed to be, mm. and nature has seasons. You know, after after the summer, there's fall, and then winter, and then spring and summer, and there's a cycle of highs and lows built into nature. And to think that we want to stagnate and only feel one emotion of of being good, being happy, being well, whereas we need the just like nature needs four seasons to be full we need all of those experiences to also be full. It's true. So there's my uh, my armchair philosophy about uh, summertime. I like it. Let's enjoy it while we're at the, at the high. Right. But let's also be okay when we're in the winter, when we're in the darkness and the, and the cold and know that summer is around the corner once again. Mm, so true. So good. All right. Uh, this week's episode. Excited to drop this one. Uh, really great individual we we got to sit down with and chat with, um, bringing a unique perspective on business, on kind of this uh, rebellious way of you know leaving Wall Street and getting into food as medicine and making meaningful partnerships with innovators and industry disruptors in kind of the food space and consumer packaged goods, and recognizing you know as he did kind of leave that career and that life of Wall Street uh, to help found and support small businesses from all walks of life. He's also wanting to improve human and planetary health through food. Jarek Christie, what a guy. One of the founders of, of Vibrant Ventures. I think we can often like villainize, you know, capitalism and money, mm-hmm. but having conversations with, with people like Jarek, I think this conversation in particular shows you that conscious capitalism can be the change that we need in the world. Investing in small businesses, investing in disruptors and change makers, you can really amplify good using a financial discourse to 
to be that to be that kind of tool that allows more good to occur. Yeah. So this was a conversation about the food space, about retail space, about investing and, and finances, as well as Jarrett's story going from Wall Street to opening vibrant ventures and seeing food as medicine and how he can play a major part in bringing that to the people. So it was a conversation that lit me up, you know, coming from a food background for, you know, 14 years now or so with the juice truck. Um, it's a space that I hold near and dear to my heart. I love kind of the snack and beverage space and the plant-based whole food space and mushrooms and adaptogens. And this is all stuff that um, Jared is, is, is bringing more accessibility and more kind of eyes and light into these areas. So it's uh, exciting to see what he's doing, to see the businesses that he's working with from some of our favorites of Wooden Spoon Herbs, Earth and Star, Sun Scoop, um, our favorite rainbow, you know, our favorite mushroom tincture out there, Super Mush, everyone that he's working with, mm -hmm. super exciting products. So um, I think this was a dynamic and evolving conversation from from retail to finance to spirituality. So I'm excited for you guys to dive in. Yeah, you will definitely dig this episode. And um, before we let it roll, we want to hear from this week's sponsors. First impressions matter. There are no two ways around it. And what's the first thing that someone notices about you? In most cases, it's your face and more importantly, your skin. And if you aren't already, it's time to put your best face forward. How do you do that? By adding a skincare routine. And you know what? It's not hard. You just don't have the right tools until now. Clinically proven to reduce wrinkles, fine lines, and signs of aging, Caldera Lab is the leader in men's skincare and is here to save the day. You can use our exclusive code MOREGOOD at calderalab.com to enjoy 20% off their best products. That's a good deal. We love Caldera Lab. We love that it's a high-performance men's skincare product. They have this thing. It's the Regimen. It leads off, leads off their product lineup. It's a twice-a-day routine. Zach and I have been doing it to really literally transform your skin. I was just looking over the table at you, dude, and I got to say, you are looking younger. Your glow is, is, is popping off, and we've been using uh, Caldera. Caldera Lab for probably, you know, close to three months now. And I got to say, I'm feeling the results myself and I'm seeing them on you. The clean slate, the base layer, the good. I didn't know that skincare could be such a big part of my, my self-care, my self-love routine. I look forward to starting my day with a clean slate and the base layer. And I look forward to finishing my day with the good. Mm. Uh, these are plant-based ingredients that are so clean that uh, you know I'd scoop them with a spoon and put them in put them in my smoothie. Right. When I go to uh, you know the grocery store and look at what's in most of our skincare products, it's a bunch of words that I don't understand. And knowing that our skin is our biggest organ and it's going to absorb all these chemicals, it's like you know we know the saying like you are what you eat, but you're also what you put on your skin. Our our skin's going to absorb this, so. We should have the same kind of consideration of putting on our skin with the same consideration that we with with the foods that we eat. And Caldera Lab, fully plant-based, incredible ingredients that, like I say, I'd put them in my smoothie. So this is a brand that I'm so excited that uh, we get to work with. It's 
fully in alignment with uh, kind of my personal views, and uh, it feels good. That's right. And you can get 20% off with our code, MoreGood, at CalderaLab.com. That's 20% off at CalderaLab.com by using code MoreGood. Jump into skincare and first impression royalty with Caldera Lab. Get after it, friends. And this week's episode is also brought to you by AG1. This is our go-to morning routine. We're so excited that AG1 is our partner. And really, it is the daily foundational nutritional supplement that supports whole body health. And like I said, we use it every day. We started on the AG1, just wanted to replace all the supplements in the cupboards and you know, having just like a real simple single solution that supports my entire body and covers all of those nutritional bases. I don't have to worry about, oh, did I get enough greens today? Did I eat enough, you know, diversity to hammer off all the nutrients and vitamins and minerals that I need? When I take AG1, I know that I've got my baselines more than covered to support my immune system, to give me some extra energy. Um, I love it. I drink it in the morning um, before, you know, I start my day. And it really makes me feel so good. It's just knowing it's this one little habit that leads to many other little habits that add up to just like a good way of living. And so I love starting my morning with AG1. Wake and shake, throw it in there. I love the wake and shake, Dean. Oh, yeah, it's good. I get a smile on my face every time I I put the AG1 into into my bottle and give it a shake. My kids always want to partake and shake their own bottles. It's at home or on the go for yourself or for your family. You know, my whole family's on the AG1 train, and I just love knowing that myself, my wife, and my kids are getting 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, and whole food source nutrients, comprehensive nutrition in one simple scoop, and we're building healthy daily habits in just one minute per day for myself and the whole family, knowing that it promotes gut health, supports immunity, boosts energy, helps recovery. It just gives me insurance for myself and my family. The beautiful thing about AG1, not only does it do all of that, it does all of that for less than $3 a day. So really, it's a pretty inexpensive habit that has huge benefits for you. So if you're looking for a simpler, effective investment for your health, try AG1 and get five free AG1 travel packs and a free one-year supply of vitamin D with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash more good. That's drinkag1.com slash more good. Check it out. All right. Before we let this episode roll, so grateful for you guys tuning in. If you want to support a little more good, three easy ways to support the podcast and allow us to continue to spread this message. One, support our sponsors, AG1 and Caldera Lab. Two, leave a review. If you like this episode, leave us a five-star review, four-star, whatever resonates on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Leaving reviews just allows us to get our our podcasts and our episodes out to more people. And three, share it with a friend. If you think somebody would be interested in the subject matter, send it to a friend, relative, uncle, auntie, whatever it might be. Those are three awesome ways that you can support a little more good. All right, on to this week's episode. All right, welcome back to another episode of A Little More Good. We are excited to be sitting here across the Zoom table, but just uh, just down the same West Coast here, or t- talking with uh, Jared Christie. He's a venture investor, 
focused on consumer packaged goods and um, really just making a difference, a positive impact in the world with, uh, with the way you invest, the businesses you support and choose. And um, we're excited to to talk to you about all things like investment, um, how how to you know be successful in your pitches and make a difference through you know the the resources we have and the businesses we choose to support and invest in. So thank you, uh, Jarrett, for coming on the pod. Good to meet you. Good to be with you in this space, man. Great. Thank you. Yeah, it's really nice to be here. And uh, I've got the opportunity to listen to a few of your podcasts and they've been really informative for me. Awesome guests, like a really wide variety of topics. And uh, I also frequent the juice truck when I'm in Vancouver and notice that you carry a lot of the brands that I invest in. So, uh, you know, it's nice to finally meet you guys. Yeah. When I, when I went and checked out your website, I was like, damn, this guy's tuned in. He's got like Jarrett's uh, invested in all of my favorite brands. So uh, very, very exciting to connect and to, to dive into the CPG space and investment space. And um, just want to say that uh, from an outside perspective, I, uh, I think you've got great taste. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, you know, that's kind of what it's all about, especially at the early stage. You got to find things that are going to resonate with an audience and, and land with people that, that haven't yet been discovered. Yes, I've been I've been dying to try the sun scoop. I haven't tried that yet because we don't have it in Canada yet. But mm-hmm. uh, it looks yeah, like it's a, a harder one to get to people. You know, frozen in general is just a difficult category. Yeah. Yes, and sun scoops really crack the code. Like the ice cream pints are are delicious, but then we recently launched these. Um, think of like almost like a single or two bite frozen dessert piece covered in gluten free cookie dough and then uh, sugar free chocolate, and it's just like you know, the most decadent, incredible vegan dessert Damn. you've probably never tried. Yeah. <laughs> we might just have to drive down to the States just say, for some ice cream. Sounds like a road trip. Yeah. <laughs> it's Come worth on. it. Yeah, definitely. All right. Coming for your sun scoop. Well, I thought just for for the sake of storytelling and exploration, we could kind of start with, with your roots, shared roots with us actually growing up here in BC. Um, yeah. How does a guy go from you know kicking soccer balls in Vancouver soccer fields to uh, to uh, trading stocks in Wall Street? Uh, maybe we can kind of start with your journey from BC to to New York and and what that journey looked like, and we can kind of go from there. Yeah, um, so I I grew up playing soccer in uh, Point Grey on the west side of Vancouver, and uh, we had quite an impressive club. We had Terry Dunfield and a couple other players who went on to play. Um, at really high levels. And, uh, you know, through that time, we won some provincial championships and other big tournaments. We traveled internationally. And um, ultimately, I was a good player. And I kind of flirted with the idea of trying to go professional, which I don't think is like a common path. Uh, or It wasn't at the time a common path. Like we've had a few younger players from Canada really pave the way since then. But at that time, we didn't have a lot of overseas professional players from Canada. Because if you were a you know superb athlete, you generally went into hockey uh, or, or other sports, but um, I loved soccer and really wanted to try to play like at the highest level I could. So I went and gave it a shot. Uh, we would go to tournaments kind of like under 16, under 17 um, overseas. And we'd try to get tryouts with like, you know, clubs like youth clubs overseas. Uh, and then ultimately um, I decided to go play at McGill. I left Vancouver after graduating from Lord Bing High School, I left Vancouver and went to uh, Montreal. And I played two seasons there. And I, I was, uh, my first season I redshirted. So my second season I won, uh, you know, a rookie of the year award or whatever for the conference. And 
And I thought, okay, well, like, you know, um, at that point I was like maybe 18, 19. And I thought, okay, well, it's time to like really give it a shot. Um, because, you know, as an athlete, that's not that young anymore. And so, um, I went over to Europe, spent a little bit of time with a couple, you know, little known clubs that are effectively like farm teams for some bigger German clubs. And, um, and, you know, I think it's the kind of thing where when you're competing against people who are just so hungry, where they have one ticket out of really dire circumstances, it's very hard to compete when you come from somewhere like Canada, where you're pretty comfortable, no matter where you fall uh, on the socioeconomic ladder, you're generally going to be more comfortable than the bottom rungs of call it South America or Africa for that matter. And uh, I learned very quickly, like what hunger is and, you know, competing against players who uh, had basically um, one outlet or one, you know, potential for changing their livelihood. And so I really admired those players and felt that I maybe didn't have quite the grit and tenacity to, to go all the way or the talent for that matter. So, um, but it was a fun experience and I ended up going, uh, I took a scholarship to the university of Kentucky and went and played uh, my junior year. I transferred there and had mixed success. I had some injuries and stuff like that, but ultimately, you know, I had hoped to get into the MLS and play at the highest level, at least in North America, but um, that didn't work out. And, you know, thankfully so, because I ended up, uh, I got a, some interviews with some of the big investment banks on wall street. They were really courting athletes at that time. So picture 2005 um, wall street. It's like pre-crisis uh, going on 2006. It's pre, you know, great financial crisis. And they've packed all the Ivy league schools, all the top, um, all the top state schools that are kind of well-known and, and that wall street recruits from and uh and they're kind of down to this uh looking for athletes because they felt athletes made good um risk takers they, they made good traders uh specifically and so uh, myself and a group of 11 other athletes from varying sports and colleges like we had a volleyball player from santa barbara a golfer from pomona um my friend who was a, a soccer player and back-to-back -back national champion at indiana university we all went to uh, we all went together to Bank of America, but other athletes were placed through this. It was called the Alumni Athlete Network, founded by two Ivy League basketball players, one of whom is is one of my closest friends to this day. They um, they placed eleven of us across Wall Street, like Goldman Sachs, UBS, like these various investment banks, and across varying positions. We all gravitated towards like the risk taking um positions like trading and uh you know ultimately like portfolio management for most of these guys and um it was you know had that not happened had i not had this kind of chance introduction to these two gentlemen who um you know felt it was their duty to get athletes you know onto trading floors um you know my life would look very different today mm -hmm. what an interesting idea though like it's really it's really quite brilliant when you think about it because you have people who know how like know how to work hard they know what it takes to you know find and, and be successful at a highly competitive level and yet like you said like understand calculated risk and like looking yeah. you know finding the gap or finding the what's what's the the high risk high reward play that we could run and so kind of viewing it through the lens of an athlete uh is really quite interesting and probably relatively unique like there's not going to be a lot of people with that story of like how they got into into trading and and necessarily finances for, for a direct line from athletics yeah and i think in some ways we were maybe the the end of an era also like i think be, having been uh athletes 
during that time, like when I was a teenager through to college, let's say, um, there was a really different approach for better or for worse, probably for worse if you were to allow, you know, our modern day society to judge it. But the way that athletes were treated was not very kind, was not very polite. Like there's things that coaches would say to you that would just never fly today um, for a variety of reasons. But that did make for thick skin. And like I do recall, you know, being at Bank of America throughout the financial crisis and then at Citadel, a large hedge fund after that, I do recall um, moments of just high stress and anxiety, feeling relatively calm and relatively undisturbed, maybe relative to those around me who had all excelled academically, but hadn't necessarily, you know, competed uh, in athletics or other, you know, events where there's high stakes and lots of pressure and, and lots of adversity or a coach yelling at you and stuff like that. So it, it certainly did make for uh, a different type of athlete, call it on the trading floor. But, um, but yeah, I think that that was basically the end of an era. I think nowadays, um, the dynamic in youth sports is much kinder and a little mm -hmm. less adversarial than it, than it was during our day. Yeah, yeah, I, <laughs> I would agree that there's some some sense of like the you know, and, and again, it's not necessarily it's not necessarily a bad thing, but that the everybody gets a ribbon kind of thing can can help to be inclusive to give people you know expose them to sport, give them opportunities to play, and we don't need to necessarily delineate between which five year old is going to be you know going to go to the Ivy League school and have a crack at the majors or whatever it might be, and which ones are just going to play yeah. for fun when they're that young. But there is there is value in competitive there is in that competitive sense, and there is value in learning how to lose and learning you know, what it takes to, to, to come out on top of like a, yeah, highly charged, stressful situation. So definitely like anything, there's, you know, there's a happy, there's a happy medium. Yes. Like there's so much polarity across all views these days. And one of them would be, you know, the trope would be like, oh, these Gen Zennials, they, you know, they're, they have no grit. They have no tenacity. They, everybody's given a participation ribbon. Well, I know that's not true. I have friends with kids who are competing at high levels of ac uh, athletics and academics. And it's competitive and and they're learning those skills and, and they're learning, you know, the value of hard work and the difference between a win and a loss, because that's the nature of the world, even though we'd love for everybody to, to feel like a winner at all times, that might not be what's for our greatest good. And so I think, you know, we're just a little too married to these um, extreme viewpoints that like kids are so soft today, there's no competition. Well, that's not true, but it has gotten a little more respectful, I'd say, um, you know, of the athlete. Yeah. Yeah. Keeping with the sports analogy, like we can keep moving the ball down the field, so to speak in, in terms of how we're progressing, where we don't have coaches who, you know, use, yeah, a harmful, abusive language towards athletes, but they can still be tough on them and, and help them to rise to their best. Cause that's, that's what we need is we need people to push us and it might feel uncomfortable, but it's going to get us into spaces and places that like, you know, how your story unfolded, you, you may never have been able to script that. Right. And if it weren't for people helping to push you along the way, you don't end up there. Could, could never have scripted this. And it's only gotten more, you know, it's only gotten more extreme since that time. And I think we probably all feel that way in this day and age, like, you know, the days of scripting anything are long gone. We're all just strapped in for the ride here. Absolutely. So you've gone from, you know, exploring this, this path of pursuing soccer as a, as a love and a profession, and it took you to Wall Street. Um, what, were, what was that evolution going from the pitch to, to the, the trading room? Like, how did you evolve as a person? Uh, what were your kind of 
big moments or takeaways or, or things that scared you or woke you up kind of yeah, walk us through kind of your own personal evolution in Wall Street and then we'll kind of go from there. Yeah, it's interesting to think of it as an evolution. Like I think I in particular, relative to at least my friends who kind of share their story with me, I feel like I've lived my life in like really distinct chapters, like heavy delineation between phases. So I had my youth, which was soccer and and social in large part. Um, and then I had, you know, my college experience, which was soccer and academics. And then I had a, you know, professional career because it starts in earnest when you, when you go straight to Wall Street, like I did an internship at Bank of America, then they hired me full time. I went and finished my school very quickly just because they tantalized me with a paycheck and, uh, you know, got, got the credits out of the way while I was interning and then kind of started full time. And, um, and then they get you on the, you know, they get you on the rat wheel of like, if you work hard, you get rewarded and you get paid well and you get a taste for a little bit of money at a young age. And it kind of distorts, uh, it lends like a bit of a distorted lens, I'd say, uh, just on work and money in general. But I was generally aware of that. I think being like a Canadian on Wall Street, um, coming from a modest family with good values, like I was able to recognize that I was, you know, a bit of an outsider and it kind of made it more tolerable and, and less pressure. And uh, I think it offered that kind of a fresh lens. I think for that reason, I was able to um, ingratiate myself with with the right people. Like I often worked directly for the, you know, the managing director or the head of the business unit. That was kind of my experience. And, and Wall Street ultimately um, led to going to work at Citadel with, um, with uh, my boss and friend who ran the business that I worked for at Bank of America on, you know, a trading business, went to Citadel and then um, from there kind of got really enamored with the world of, um, options trading. And, um, I don't know if you know the, um, breakdown of the, the market structure in the U S but there's these option pits. Um, at least there used to be, they're kind of like this day and age, everything's, you know, algorithmic and electronic, but at that time it was just transitioning from like open outcry trading in the pits to, you know, heavily electronic and throughout my, like the early phase of my career, and um, I really just took to um, the idea of like a multivariate model that did a really good job with just a few inputs replicating human risk appetite. So when we're trading stocks, you know, you can bet that a stock's going to go up and you can bet that a stock's going to go down. And it's pretty um, binary, the outcome, right? They can trend along flat, I guess, but generally stocks will go up or they'll go down or they'll do both. And ultimately, you can choose a point when to exit the position and either take gains or losses. But in options trading, it adds uh, other dynamics too, specifically of like, by what magnitude, i.e. how much do you think it will go up or go down and over what time frame? And so, uh, you know, there's um, a model, uh, Black-Scholes model that's been developed around uh, pricing these instruments, these, these options, and it does a really good job of just like, you know, accounting for all the various inputs that can go into, um, you know, a uh, an outcome that depends on a lot of things, as you know, many of these decisions that we make in, in life do. And so I found options to kind of replicate um, a more lifelike experience of risk reward. And um, I just took to it. And I, I luckily had some friends who um, showed me the ropes, how these markets work, because you can do all the academic work and you can understand all the pricing models, you know, and building all the spreadsheets and all that, but without actually getting into the 
uh, ecosystem of trading and like participating in the exchange of risk, um, it's very hard to, to understand how these markets work. And so I was lucky to kind of have a front row seat and I didn't mind being the one who would transact, you know, when there's um, millions, sometimes tens of millions at stake over, you know, a transaction. I didn't mind being the one who would, you know, push the button or, you know, execute the trade over the phone or whatever. And um, it was a really interesting skill set to develop. So I remember at one point um, I had left Citadel and started a um, an options trading business at a, a research firm, a really well-regarded re uh, macroeconomic research firm on Wall Street, where they had the senior partners were, you know, people from the highest level of of, um, of banking at the Federal Reserve and and uh, worked for you know politicians as as their senior macroeconomic uh, economics advisor and. Um, these people produce such high quality research that um, it was really empowering for myself and some friends who came over and, and bolted on this trading business, disseminating this high end research and then distilling it all the way down into a and here's the trade you do, the very specific risk to take in order to capitalize on these views. And it was a fun job. It was really, um, I think, a very unique job in that we kind of took um, it used to be like a bit of an assembly line on Wall Street where you had the research department, then the sales department, then the trading department. We kind of amalgamated all three into this role that um, I would suspect is the is probably the norm now, um, being a little distance from, from markets at this stage in my career. I would assume that's kind of the norm now. It's just adding efficiency, really. Mm -hmm. um, but we did this, uh, myself and, and a couple of friends, partners, did this for you know a number of years and and just made really good relationships, getting to know like some of the top hedge fund managers on Wall Street, working closely with them. You develop a relationship where you really understand the risk reward lens and what it is that they're looking for on a daily basis. And we kind of made that our bread and butter. We we're just known as a place to go. Um, I think a lot of Wall Street makes their money in a way that can be counter to the client's interest. It's just the natural, I guess it's a principal agent dilemma, something like to that effect, where you know what's good for Goldman Sachs might not be good for the client. And so by kind of creating something that was just a little bit outside of the box and different and evolved from that model and saying, hey, we're actually really aligned with, with the end client and end risk taker who's putting their money at stake and trying to generate returns for themselves, other high net worth people, but ultimately, oftentimes these hedge funds are running monies for like, you know, Ontario teachers or Texas teachers or, you know, people that you can imagine um, really need professional money management in order to preserve their retirement plans and, and security. And so um, it felt really good to be offering a product that was just more aligned with, with the uh, end risk bearer and, you know, being really honest about it. Like, look, nobody has a crystal ball. Nobody knows if a stock's going to go up or down. And here we are doing our best trying to find a symmetry where we can, in the case of the instruments that I was trading options, where we can take a unit of risk for an outsized, you know, six plus units of return would be like a nice risk reward. Now, there's other factors that model into that, but that's kind of the gist of it, looking to find asymmetric, you know, non-one-to-one, non-linear risk reward. And we got known for doing that really well. And so got to know some really um, just impressive, lovely people um, operating in the asset management world when, you know, hedge funds at the time didn't have the greatest reputation, but, you know, I'll say 99% of the people I met and engaged with in that industry were just stand up, you know, family people. Mm. So was this something that was intuitive for you or 
Uh, were you always an analytical person that was able to kind of analyze and understand numbers and data and kind of market trends? Or was this something that you were able to like break down and kind of intuitively understand? Yeah, I think like I was never the um, top quant student who was going to go to MIT. Although, you know, I probably, if I were more passionate about it, perhaps, like I think I was mathematically inclined. My brother did go to MIT and is an engineer, um, but I was probably a little more socially adept or it leaned into that more. Um, but that said, I, I tested well and I, you know, I was a top student and, and I was general, generally like mathematically STEM inclined, I would say, um, you know, um, like science, like logic. Um, but I wouldn't say I was particularly, you know, one end of the spectrum, if you want to call it left brain, right brain, or, um, you know, whatever the, the way we delineate between, um, you know, your, your ability to do math versus say like creative writing or, you know, acting or singing or something like that. I was kind of right down the middle and I, and I didn't really have a true sense of what it was that I was going to go into ever. I was always just kind of very open to what, you know, the universe might offer me. Um, I did have a propensity um, I did have a penchant for money. Like, like I did like, um, markets exchange. I did from a young age and I can recall my, my parents saying to me, you know, you're going to have to find a profession that is fast paced and exciting with lots of, you know, money moving around. And, and I didn't really think much of it when they said that to me as a kid, cause I didn't, you don't really know what other people are interested in. You just know what you're interested in. And then ultimately, you know, it made sense as, as my path kind of, um, emerged uh, over what seems like, you know, happenstance, but, it, you know, uh, I would suggest that there's probably no coincidences in this life. Mm. So as you're, as you're, you know, venturing into this world of, of finance and, and on the trading floor and stuff and seeing it, like a lot of people have kind of the, the understanding or they have the picture of it as like, it's, it can be pretty cutthroat. And, you know, like you said, you're managing, you're managing uh, other people's money. And in some ways, like, it's easy to remove the the people from from the the dollars and and what it's doing. So how did you kind of maintain? And certainly as you moved into like c creating your own uh, your own company and, and offering you know trades through that. How did you how did you resist or maybe not resist, but how did you keep in mind that like yo th this is like other people's you know livelihood and their futures as you said and help that balance like what might be like a high risk kind of situation and balance what could be a really great return versus, oh man, like I, I want to be like accountable to these people. What was that like with like walking that kind of line? Cause I always see, you know, we see like the Wolf of Wall Street kind of thing and it's like yeah. glamorized and very, you know, high risk and the, the, the people are often like removed from it. And it's just like trying to do everything you can to like make that big hit, that big return. So what, what was that like kind of walking that dynamic? You know, I was quite far removed from, let's call it like traditional wealth management, where you are um, a wealth manager with a number of clients who you advise, and they're people who are your neighbors and your dentist and your friends and family, and you advise them directly on managing their wealth. Let's call that kind of one end of the spectrum. I was far on the other end of the spectrum where we were dealing in like, so you're so far down the path of like esoteric bits and bytes and portfolio management, like you're doing a trade within a much broader diversified portfolio that like you're doing trades that you hope don't work. They're almost like insurance at times, you know, because if that works, then you probably have bigger problems at the 
uh, call it the mothership or, you know, the, the bigger portfolio, broader portfolio. But um, in general, you're still dealing with people, right? Because I'm dealing with the hedge fund manager whose responsibility is to both preserve and grow the wealth of, for instance, like an Ontario teacher's pension plan or, you know, something of that nature. And so it would, it would actually be more on me to kind of um, understand who the underlying uh, beneficiary was of, of these trades. But in reality, you know, you're dealing with um, endowments, pensions, but in my case, predominantly hedge funds where they're just so highly sophisticated. And at this stage in finance, they're so quantitative and they're so um, fine-tuned in their model. Um, now, within that, you get individual portfolio managers and traders taking big swings, right? Because their job is to go and they think they've found some edge. Um, you know, they've uncovered some alpha, as we call it, like a disproportionate, you know, reward per unit of risk. And uh, and then we would help them express those views. And it's it's exciting. You know, that's really fun. But I can't say that it was tremendously like attached to the um you know the ultimate source of of the capital like it was so far removed at this stage through these kind of sophisticated um risk reward machines money preservation machines you look at a lot of these hedge funds you know they underperformed for a long time but when you see these huge market corrections that's when you can really see like the cream rise to the crop where these hedge funds that just put up good numbers every single year in like, you know, we have, we've had a pretty silly bull market run for, for several years leading up to, um, you know, I guess we had a steep traction rate as the onset of the pandemic. And then we went right back to this extreme bull run. Like during those kind of manic times, the good hedge funds are, are going to put up some returns, but they're not going to be the standout performers. But it's during, you know, it's when the tide goes out that you see who's swimming without shorts, as they say. And, and these hedge funds who are just year after year, now decade after decade, showing just you know, exceptional risk-adjusted performance, um, you recognize that they're running very, very sophisticated models. And just to get a glimpse, like just having worked at Citadel for some time and seeing um, the sophistication of the risk-taking and the discipline and the modeling, it's a really good, uh, it was just a good framework to learn for, you know, for any business endeavor, really. And then you went from the, the path continued the athletes on Wall Street to the venture capital, kind of opening your own firm, Vibrant Ventures, um, mm -hmm. on the other coast of uh, the States, California-based, I, I guess kind of international uh, VC firm, but um, focusing on uh, mission-driven founders and maximizing growth and impact and just kind of going through the companies you work with, like... Um, I mentioned some of my favorite ones like Sunscoop, uh, Rainbow, Earth and Star, Wooden Spoon. Uh, love, love. I actually took, I've got some allergies right now, so I took uh, the LREs from Wooden Spoon Herbs this morning. Great product. Um, yeah, and she's so cool. Such an amazing founder. Um, I love the Moku plant-based jerky. Um, I'm just name, rattling off a couple, but there's some amazing mission-driven businesses that really represent like a a form of intentional conscious mission driven capitalism where these businesses are leading with values leading with their why um so how what was that transition from from wall street to really being a mission driven investor growing you know businesses that are are here to to really change the planet well, thank you for saying that. Like, I, I love these businesses, obviously. 
and I've been investing in them, you know, originally personally, and then, you know, call it institutionally through, through my venture capital firm vibrant, but um, it's nice to hear that outside um, validation and, and, you know, coming all the way from Vancouver, no less where it's hard for us to get a lot of the, of the products there. So, you know, that's really nice to hear. I'm in Sedona right now, which is not where I live. I live in Venice beach and I hit, you know, the juice shop here and, and a few stores nearby as I tend to do in every town that I visit. And it's always just so encouraging and flattering to see these products and like, you know, these founders who I have a direct relationship with to see their products, you know, on front and center display at these sometimes obscure stores. It's, um, it's really validating. So thank you for saying that. And, um, you know, the segue is an interesting one, like, like anything, it kind of happens gradually then all at once. I was, um, I was running that options trading business that I mentioned and um, enjoying it, like had a good, um, I was having a really good run and had good clients and, you know, was kind of almost a little bit content in where I had landed um, professionally and thinking, okay, well now what? Uh, not married, didn't have kids, um, good income, lived a fun life with good friends in New York City, had access to, you know, kind of constant and consistent um intellectual growth, I would say, because in those circles, as you can imagine, um, you're interacting with a lot of just really smart people who outside of finance have interests like, I don't know, aviation, uh, hotel building, hospitality, just very cool things, restaurant, restaurateurs and, and the hospitality industry, that part really appealed to me. Um, but there's also, you know, the other side that you'd probably imagine, which is a lot of socializing, a lot of recreation, a lot of partying, a lot of drinking, um, drugs, late nights, these types of things that just aren't that sustainable. I mean, surprisingly, they're, they're, they can be very sustainable. There's like old codgers that have been doing it for, you know, four or five decades where you're just like, wow, you know, this guy's 50 plus, generally guys, 50 plus and still still going hard. And And, you know, that's a great thing to get to see when you're in your 20s and 30s because you're like okay that's kind of what I'd be looking at if I stay in this doing this for a long time and um, for me I tend to be pretty um, all in in whatever it is that I'm doing and you know through doing that through oscillating between all in here and all in there you can find some balance and that was generally my model um, but I started in my 30s I started um, flirting with like sobriety um, I had always eaten well because I was an athlete. Um, I had never had like an addictive personality or, you know, a penchant for like heavy binging just because having been an athlete, I think I had like a pretty disciplined mindset in that regard around health and fitness and performance. Sleep was very important to me. But, you know, I started fine tuning that a little bit. And then I went pretty extreme. I went, you know, 100% sober. I flirted with, um, you know, uh, just a totally unadulterated lifestyle, like eating nothing but pure vegan food and, you know, never drinking tap water, never drinking, you know, plastic bottled water, just getting really extreme in what I put in my body, um, you know, from a, a food and sustenance standpoint, but also like um, from an information standpoint. And so like I, it, it got to this interesting point where I was practicing yoga at a school called um, Lighthouse Yoga School in Brooklyn. That is just, it was, you know, a really like incredible place. It's it's no longer open. It closed down during or it became online only during the um pandemic. But they had just this array of like 
really exceptional teachers, like, you know, people who are, they were young, but they were almost like, you know, they felt like ascended masters, um, something to that, of that nature. And um, it was just such a great place to practice. I live very, I live nearby or I moved nearby so that I could just, in the morning, I would kind of check my subway pass, uh, you know, and I'd had my suit and tie on, go to my desk job. And then I would, the market would close at four o'clock. I'd wrap up my stuff and around like 4.30 or five, I'd already be on the train back to Brooklyn to go do my like three hour sadhana, like uh, yoga practice and meditation. And um, I did that for a good more than two years, like probably close to three years of like pretty intense practice, varying degrees of intensity and um, varying degrees of like purity of lifestyle. But I flirted with all the, you know, the extremes, um, including celibacy and like the more interesting ones. And so um, I, I, uh, through that process, it's really hard to maintain the same relationships that one might have, you know, prior to embarking on, you know, the seeker's journey. And so um, whether you, you know, no matter how hard you try, people are going to like recognize some changes in you. And, you know, you might stop getting invited to like the drinks and stuff like that, uh, which was fine by me because it, it was serving of what I wanted to do. But ultimately, um, I had to kind of come to this crossroads where the decision was like, okay, is this going to be my, um, is this going to continue to be my career for, you know, it was, I was, 13, 14 years into like the Wall Street career at that point, is this going to be my career for another decade or not? And that sounds a little bit extreme, but it really felt like, you know, you kind of had to decide if you were going to be in or or out, so to speak. And I had started making um, angel investments because of my interest in food, um, plant-based nutrition, that kind of nexus between athletic performance and sustainable ethical eating was like really where I lived. And I started to meet, you know, founders in that community because there weren't a lot of brands that provided, um, you know, call it really clean uh, and sustainable, um, free of animal products um, type, um, you know, packaged foods. This is really readily available at that time. And they're, they're becoming readily available now. But, um, I remember thinking, well, seems like I'm probably early. And it also seems like there's probably a lot of people coming behind me. And so I'm going to start trying to get positioned for this, uh, and kill two birds with one stone, um, to use a non-vegan expression, because I will, um, not only, um, could I like be in a good position to benefit monetarily if I'm picking the right companies, but I can really help seed, you know, part of this movement. And that's probably uh, a little bit self-aggrandizing because this was going to happen with or without me, but I was like, how do I kind of get involved with the skill set that I had? And so I started investing with, um, like you'll probably know a company out of Toronto called Beekeepers Naturals. Um, there's a young woman, Carly Stein, who's the founder of that company. She was working at Goldman Sachs at the time. And, and I had met with her and I had invested with her and encouraged her, you know, like do this full time. Wall Street will always be there. And she was, you know, already two steps ahead of me and, and quickly built this kind of behemoth company with, with products from the beehive. And, um, that kind of set the precedent that showed the the blueprint. I also had a, a girlfriend back then who, a, a woman I lived with who started a natural beauty products company. And so I, again, saw the CPG model, same thing went from like zero to 60 really quickly, like from us funding it to Catterton coming in with a big check or Unilever. It was really like eye-opening to me, like, whoa, 
these things kind of look like call options, which, uh, you know, I won't get into the technicalities of, of like, you know, a finance instrument, but basically think of them as instruments where you can risk one unit to make 10 to a hundred times your money if you're kind of picking them right at the right time. And um, it was just a really elegant, like amalgamation of everything I was interested in. Uh, I think I described to you, you know, my penchant for options trading and these, um, you know, sophisticated risk-taking models. And then the athletics meets nutrition, meets um, ethics in, call it farming and food production, sustainability. I was like, oh, here's kind of the center point of the diagram is this early stage investing. And so I, I made several investments um, just as an angel investor. And, and I got lucky. Like I just got so lucky that the universe put in front of me the right founders because um, it's not like I met a hundred companies and made six investments. You know, I probably met a few dozen companies and made six investments and um, beekeepers was a great one. And then rainbow mushrooms, Tanya, who I believe is coming on your podcast soon too, uh, which is just so great to hear. You'll have an awesome discussion with her. She was a real pioneer in the mushroom movement. She came down from Toronto and met with me in New York and was like, Hey, I think that mushrooms serve a very important role, not only in individual health and well-being, but in like the elevation of consciousness on this planet. And that was like the first thing she said to me. I'm like, okay, we're going to be very good friends and I'm going to invest with you. And um, and that came true uh, going to her wedding in, in June this year in Toronto. But um, I made a few others with like Sunscoop ice cream. I invested individually, Moku mushroom jerky, a sports drink called Barcode, founded by a trader for a trainer rather from the New York Knicks uh, and LA Lakers, who's working with the top athletes, kind of formulating this beautiful coconut water supplemented with ashwagandha, cordyceps mushrooms for endurance, vitamin D for performance, and just like explaining to me this white space in in the sports drinks market. And, you know, I almost couldn't believe it. There's this like really funny saying that, uh, okay, two economists are walking down the street and they walk past a hundred dollar bill on the ground. Neither of them stops to pick it up because it can't possibly be there. Right. They're just so accustomed to theory that like that can't exist. And I felt that way when, when in this case, uh, the founder Bar Malik walked me through, um, you know, the sports drink market. And I was like, wow, you know, there's so much white space here. There's these billion dollar enterprises at this point point like body armor hadn't quite yet been purchased and set that eight to ten billion dollar valuation or whatever it was but it was like evident that that was in motion and then there was no other players and Gatorade had tried to develop their own clean version and that's when I really recognized like okay it's time to like put some real money behind this so I wrote a check to bar and uh as I had for these other you know five angel investments and I said, okay, this is, you know, it's time to get out there and tell my story and, and raise some real capital. So I'd moved to Venice Beach, which is where a lot of the founders are, are located in and around Southern California, but there's a particular concentration uh, in, in Venice. And um, I, you know, hung a shingle, so to speak, and launched this, uh, this entity called Vibrant Ventures and starting with Fund One. And we went out and raised 10 million bucks and said, we're going to go take advantage of this glaring white space where like... I try not to be too extreme in my language. I spend very little time like tilting against even animal agriculture or, you know, which we could say, you know, to a large degree, like factory farming. Um, I can understand why there's people who would characterize it as evil. There's just so much suffering. It's so obviously counter to the interests of the consumer, the animals, the topsoil and the environment, yet it persists, you know, to the benefit of a few. Uh, and so you can label it however you want, but I don't spend too much time kind of railing against that stuff. 
I look at it, you know, through a capitalist lens, which, you know, for better or for worse is the best system we have. And you go, okay, the pipes are built here. There's about seven companies, seven consumer goods companies globally that control everything that's in your house from your hand soap to your, you know, countertop cleaner, laundry detergent, um, tissue, uh, paper towels, um, packaged food, uh, basically, you know, water bottles, everything that you consume on a daily basis or that households in North America and, and most of the developed world consume on a daily basis come from like these seven companies. And there is an incredible element. And this is, you know, this is among the most harsh things that I'll say, because I'm generally careful with my language. Like, there's an element of poison for profit. Like that's the only way we can label it. It's not to say that there's sinister people there sitting like, okay, how do we poison people and get rich? But that's just the outcome. Like if you show me the incentive structure, I can basically show you the outcome every time. And I'm probably too one-sided in that. I probably remove the human element a little bit because of, you know, my time having operated at like the epicenter of finance and incentive and risk-taking, but that's generally, you know, the system on which um, enterprise in, in this world is built. And the beauty in that is, you know, I'll give you another expression. It's like, is it the presence of darkness or is it the absence of light? And if you look at it, it's both, obviously, right? They're one and the same. And there's a lot of darkness out there and there's a lot of you know, ugliness and abhorrent practices and predatory behavior on the part of corporations and mistreatment of animals is, is a really important one that's, you know, near and dear to my heart. But but even beyond that, and, and more importantly, is like the food we're feeding kids. It's just so obvious that, you know, there's huge pockets of um, generally black and brown kids who can, don't have access to, to good food, to, to high nutrition quality food. And so, when you kind of put all those things together and and reflect on uh, the whole through that lens of is it the presence of darkness or absence of light? It's just the absence of light. Like the system is there. We have all these pipes. Okay, it's dark that seven companies control all household, you know, packaged products and good. Well, guess what? It's actually brilliant that all those pipes are built and we can quickly get any product to any tens of thousands of retail grocery distributors literally in like one calendar quarter if there's enough demand for it from from the consumer and so um quickly i kind of turned my attention to that okay coming from wall street i have access to capital i have a framework for risk reward that can benefit uh risk takers monetarily if you pick some winners within in my particular category food or, or my initial category that I started with food. And then, you know, add to that this whole movement towards ESG that was building steam at the time. But I tend to stay away from the acronyms and just think of it as like impact investing. Um, you know, it used to be, you could probably go back to 2000, 2010, and people were very keen on this idea of, okay, we now invest our money, not just for return, monetary return, we now want to also do good. And call that, you know, the, the 2000s, 2010. Well, then come, you know, approaching 2020, it the pendulum continued to swing in that same direction where people recognize like, oh, not only can I have a positive impact with um, where I place my bets or invest my capital, the greater impact and social return that I have the greater monetary return, like they correlate 
I don't want to say one-to-one, -one, but there's a correlation there. The more impact you're having, the more people you're helping, chances are um, the better performing the, the company or the sector in which you're investing. And so taking those kind of three things together, you know, um, it was pretty evident that there was, you know, and, and I didn't come to this all on my own. I had, you know, tremendous advisors, um, you know, one of whom ran uh, JP Morgan's private bank in Asia, a huge business with any number of business units under it, which he had ran. And to have that expertise, um, you know, in this case, from my friend, Chris Blom, um, as like a primary advisor, day one investor, you know, just in my corner, it was so helpful. Similar with Michael Wang, who, who runs a company, uh, Prometheus out of, out of Los Angeles, who was like a superstar investor at SAC Capital, which is the TV show upon which um, the show Billions is predicated and, and, and others. So having these people in my corner, you know, reinforcing what I thought I was seeing as a real opportunity. And, you know, through my own framework, I was looking at that as through the lens of Dharma. And, you know, it's, it's not something that I spent a lot of time speaking to others about, but I thought, okay, well, if we're all here with, you know, a unique skill set with a gift to offer this world, what might be mine? Okay. This looks like this could, this could fit that bill. And so I went out and yeah, we raised $10 million and really quickly got to work deploying it with um, primarily female and minority founders, you know, not exclusively. We got some straight white dudes in there too, and they're doing a great job. And, uh, you know, we just try not to hold too hard and fast to, to any rules. You know, one, one necessary component uh, that we see in the future of food is removing animal agriculture, is stripping out... Um, is stripping out the animal torture from, from the food system. To me, that just seems like so obvious. And then, you know, I think initially I said we'd do no cane sugar, uh, no chemicals, additives, preservatives. And we've generally stuck to that. But I, you know, as we have to evolve at all times, I learned that, oh, I can actually have more of an impact, you know, investing in some companies that maybe do have a little bit of cane sugar or do have a kind of fast food element to them because you might actually have more impact you know, disrupting like uh, fast food or, you know, junk filled candy with with something that's just better for you and better for the environment. That might be like the ultimate low hanging fruit in this in this um, mission. Yeah, those are those are like, you know, to use the analogy that you you touched on before, like those are the pipelines that already exist in many ways that you can you can get people what they're looking for. And so don't try to blow up the whole system, but kind of subvert it from within. And so, yeah, if it is like a better way to do fast food, the ultimate goal might be moving people away from fast food, but that might be two or three steps down the line and to say, okay, can we meet them where they're at? Can we meet the consumer where they're at and give them an option that's better than you know, what's, what's out there right now. And usually those fast food industries are high sugar, very like all refined foods and tied deeply to animal agriculture. So, you know, it's not great that that system exists, but can we use the system as it exists to start to change it from within? So, so interesting. Um, I love, there's so much that you, that you said in there that we could, we could grab onto. I'm sure Zach has some directions to go, but one thing that I'm really curious about is, is for you, you know, and the, and your team, um, what, you know, you talked about your, your kind of like, uh, exchange with Tanya from rainbow mushrooms and like how her as a person, like really you guys connected and you were like, yes, this is going to work. How much of it is person like founder? How much of it is is um product when you're when you feel like a deep resonance of like oh yeah okay I, this person i want to work with this person or this product is so amazing that i know the person behind it is we're going to click like is there a process or are you kind of open to how it unfolds 
Yeah, you know, it's not um, it's not totally quantifiable. Like it would be very hard to build a multivariate input model to early stage investing um, because by definition, it's early stage. And in my case, it's in like nascent categories. So there's no, like there's not an abundance of empirical evidence upon which to base analysis. So a lot of it really does come down to um, intuition, feel, relationship with the founder. But look, there's, these are just different words for the same thing. Like intuition and analysis can really meet uh, at some intersection where because I'm an early stage investor, there's not all these quarters of data. Like, let's say I'm going to analyze a stock. I can go and look at, you know, several quarters of data, look at the trend, have my own kind of um, prognostication of where that trend's going to go, and then see where the stock is being priced by, you know, the other market participants. And then if I have a view different from that, go and make a wager to try to, to try to make money. In the case of early stage investing, in a nascent category, like a lot of these food products that I'm investing in, food and supplements, I would say we have a tremendous number of like mushroom and adaptogen and herbal investments as well. Um, it's very much like you're almost making the, you know, um, outrageous claim that you have a crystal ball to some effect, right? You're going, hey, currently, this is how everyone's eating ice cream, for example. But we suspect that there's a lot of people out there dying for an ice cream that eliminates the mistreatment of animals, uh, that improves upon the nutrient density, strips out the cane sugar in the case of our investment in Sunscoop and some other common allergens and things that are bad for gut health, which is bad for mental health, and uh, just kind of do it better. And I got really lucky that I started this journey of, call it CPG investing as like a, a blanket term for the category, consumer packaged goods investing, I started this at a time where we were hitting that inflection point where in the case of food, the new creations were starting to taste as good or better than conventional. The um, household products like beauty and cleaning were starting and hair were starting to perform as good or better than conventional. That wasn't the case for decades leading up to there. Otherwise, of course, people would choose the, you know, the better for you, better for environment stuff, assuming there's some, you know, price parity or something like that. Of course, they would choose the, you know, the better for you, better for the planet one. But we got to the point where the innovation was really catching up. And then it becomes like a flywheel. As soon as, you know, people see Jessica Alba make a billion dollars on The Honest Company, um, or they see these other examples, they go, oh, like, what else? You know, everything from dental floss to guacamole in my fridge can just be like stripped of anything other than the very, you know, essence and core ingredients that are required um, for that product to serve its purpose. And so that was happening right at the time where I started investing as an angel. And I felt that that would accelerate. And so that's kind of the top down view. I was like, okay, the macro is really sound here. Um, consumers are waking up. I kind of explained before that the system is built through which we have the pipes to distribute these products quickly. Like if you create an idea in your kitchen, the time you know, because of the advent of the internet, the ability to quickly set up an LLC, a uh, web domain, Instagram page, Shopify, you know, create the bench pot top product, get it, you know, into a scalable format and then launch it and sell it directly to consumers. Like that time frame just got so compressed that it totally changed the face of, of commerce. Um, and so when you add to that, 
this idea that consumers were waking up to the fact that they were being poisoned for profit. Um, they said, okay, we're going to take some of this, like we're going to take some of our power back. We're going to start voting with our dollars. Like I can go to the grocery store and purchase this hummus with a bunch of added strange oils and citric acid and natural flavors that I don't even know what that represents. Or I can go and purchase from my friend who started like an online shop making hummus in her kitchen or in an industrial kitchen. And uh, it's got three ingredients in it. And generally, like just as an aside, the point at which people start making that decision or the way, the, the point at which they're like willing to have a little friction in their daily routine and switch away from the adulterated hummus to the clean hummus is when they have kids. Because they're going, okay, this is a fresh start with a fresh tummy and a fresh consciousness and a fresh gut microbiome. And like, I've been eating kind of crappy hummus for so long, but like, I don't really want my kid to eat that. Is there like a better hummus or tahini that I can like get for them? And then that often is like the catalyst for people just to start overhauling, overhauling the whole household. And, you know, it's, it's the zeitgeist now, I would say, but going back five years ago, like, it wasn't, it was the early adopters who were saying like, hey, maybe we ought to not use this um, Unilever hand soap and dish soap. Like maybe there's some negative externalities to this, you know, 72 cent soap and maybe we pay $2 for this other soap and preserve, you know, and, and avoid some of the, you know, the negative externalities. And so the fact that that had become so mainstream, I would say as of five years ago, and it's still in the mainstreaming process, just enabled um, anybody really with a great idea with, for a disruptive product in a ubiquitous household category to go and like take a shot at it. Like here I am, here's my cookie, here's my dental floss, here's my beauty product, uh, here's my you know sweetener, um, anything like that that's just done better. And look, it starts generally by being adopted by the 1%. That's just who is privileged enough to go and afford a lot of these typically more expensive products and um, lesser known products. They have the time to research. They have the disposable income to purchase it. And like that will, that will get better over time because the beauty of these products, the beauty of CPG investing is that margins expand with scale. And so it's trying to unpack a lot here and to put it into like a, a neat little um, package, but I think I can do it. It's like, okay, you take your hummus to market and it's 10 bucks and the leading brand of hummus is four bucks. There's a huge disparity there. So not a lot of people can afford that one, but now you start to get adoption and now you're getting bigger order, orders of garbanzo beans. And now you're getting bigger orders of tahini as your primary inputs and your prices, your cost of goods sold are starting to go down. So now you're down to $8 and you're getting into Whole Foods and then you go nationwide at Whole Foods and then Gelson's or Sprouts or you know somebody who's kind of on the leading edge of natural grocery comes and picks you up and takes you nationwide across their chains. And then Kroger, Safeway, and the, you know, the everyday grocery retailers that are kind of ubiquitous around the United States pick you up. Now you've got huge order sizes uh, where you can lean on your input providers, compress your cost of goods sold, and pass those savings on to the end consumer. And so let's say you get down, I don't think we're at the stage yet. Like if if we're looking at this through a sports analogy, we're probably like in the fourth inning of you know the natural foods revolution, call it. But um, you know, now we're 
somewhere closer to price parity, where maybe people who are buying that $4 version are like, they can pay up five to $5.99 for that version with the peace of mind, knowing that they're getting something a little healthier for their family. And we've got a long way to go. Like the goal is to just totally democratize, democratize access to nutrition and get us to the point where, you know, ideally we'll just be subsidizing um, school cafeterias, like underprivileged um, parts of society that don't have good access to nutrition, like just getting that fully subsidized. I think we're not far from that because there's some, you know, leading philanthropists who are very focused on this now, and that will help accelerate that. But just looking at it through, you know, the mechanism of markets and capitalism, like we have all the tools to get better products to people at a good price. And it's just going through the, the iterations of, of that right now. So going back to your initial question that set me off on this tangent, um, I like trying to identify, you know, winners and losers, let's call it in, in this, um, packaged foods revolution. It's like finding those products that um, compete within a category where there is just a clear desire for better versions. You know, we've seen it happen to most products at this point, like breakfast cereals been done, you know, overnight oats have been done, ice cream has been done, um, pizza has been done, but there are still some, some white spaces. But now we're really at the stage where you have a number of competitors vying for those categories. It's owned by Quaker Oats, but now you have kind of six new brands all competing to be the Quaker Oats 2.0, which will ultimately get acquired by the big food company and disseminated through those pipes. So look, it's not going to give anybody looking for like the David and Goliath outcome, David versus Goliath outcome of like, you know, killing off big food who's long prospered at the disadvantage of the consumer. Like it's not going to end that way. It's going to look very much like the rest of life does just an evolution and a progression where they start to bootstrap uh, smaller, fast growing brands into their catalog of products. Hopefully they don't get overly adulterated as they get scaled up, but there will be some always, there will be some trade-off to getting them really scaled up and, and distributed to, to more and more people uh, first throughout North America and then, you know, internationally, but um, finding those products where there's two elements to the founder part. So you find the products that you think that to me is an obvious winner and I think everybody eats food. So everybody tends to have an opinion. Like I get people to taste, I get so many people to taste products and, you know, don't tell them this. I don't listen to their feedback. I watch their behavior because everybody wants to talk about it, has an opinion. That's ah, a little too salty. And, you know, this could use a little bit of this. What I like to do is put paprika and that you're like, okay, yeah, that's great. That's nice. That's all part of the feedback process. But really what I'm watching for is like, how many times do they go back for another bite? How many times do they ask me, hey, where can I buy that? How many times do I go back to their house and notice they restock the fridge? Or do I notice that that beverage I brought them sat there for months? Like that's where the real feedback is. And as you start to notice those um, important signs, you can start to recognize a pattern. It's like any type of investment. There's pattern recognition and you can start to realize like, okay, we've got a great product for which there seems to be a lot of demand and there's there's either no other products like it on the market or there's one or two who we think we can outcompete through, you know, taste marketing or some, you know, blend of the two. Then to your question, the founder part is that's the hardest one to solve for. I feel very lucky in that I've just met like tremendous founders. I think you mentioned you have wooden spoon herbs in, in the juice truck and, you know, she's like, it's like a young hippie woman in the South in, you know, and she's an herbalist through and through. 
you know, she's like been brought up through the lineage of herbalism and it's been, you know, it's been like, she would be embarrassed to hear me say this, but she's like been crowned the, you know, the, the young herbalist to pass the torch to uh, in that tradition. And she makes these beautiful high integrity products. You just know if it's coming with her label on it, that it's going to be the highest efficacy and, and um, you know, source with integrity and it's going to be efficacious. And there's no substitute for that. Like any number of people can go and do uh, you know, a case study and apply all their business school tools and strategies to uncover a white space and then go try to contrive a product to fit that white space and go to market. And that can work. I much prefer the um, natural approach where you know, more than half of my founders created their products solving a personal need. Like we have a product called Toto Cookies and they've just like cracked the code. This is the perfect example of a product, um, a new product that is uh, plant-based, gluten-free, organic, allergen-friendly, and doesn't use refined sugar. She uses coconut sugar. Now cookies are made to be decadent and indulgent. So you don't want to make something that's like overly healthy and boring and bland. It's kind of doesn't serve the purpose of a cookie, but to strip out all the unnecessary toxins and trauma to animals and, um, you know, adverse health characteristics and still be left with a product. Look, my palate's probably biased. I think it tastes better than any conventional cookie I've ever tried. Like that's where we are in the evolution of packaged food is like, go taste a Toto cookie it's got, you know, she it's got a high protein content, high fiber content. It kind of checks all the boxes. So it's not a surprise that they're selling the top selling product at vitamin shops nationwide in the US, because that's where a kind of fitness conscious consumer shops. And to me, it's really encouraging because that's not just a fitness conscious consumer, that's a mainstream consumer. Like, you know, we could joke and say like GNC and vitamin shop are kind of like almost like meathead stores, right? You got like a paleo crowd there. You've got people, CrossFitters, like this is mainstream stuff. And when these kind of um, what I tend to think of as like holistic products start to make their way into that market, then we're getting somewhere, you know, super exciting. But the reason I mentioned um, Sydney Webb, who's the founder of Toto Cookies in the first place, is that she suffered from Crohn's disease and then colon cancer at a young age. She was a soccer player, she went to USC. She's still very young in her uh, mid twenties. And um, she just thought like, you know, this isn't right. And I'm taking my health into my own hands. And she did heavy doses of adaptogens, functional mushrooms, uh, went on a really clean gluten-free diet, stripped out all these kind of adulterants that are in the standard American diet that are leading to chronic illness. And she healed herself. And she just thought, well, I want to share this with as many people as I can, because I can't imagine how many people are suffering from perhaps not as acute as, as she did, but suffering from, you know, chronic um, health conditions because of the food they're eating. The food is making them sick. Food can be medicine. Food can also be poison. And there's probably an in-between. Um, but in general, like, it would be really nice to get to a point where your food is either healing you or not harming you. And um, I would say not not just more than half. I would say the majority of founders um, in our portfolio, I have uh, 14 companies in the Vibrant Ventures portfolio. And then I have another five companies or six companies rather in which I'm personally invested. So call it 20 companies, all within food, beverage and supplements and all you know plant-based. Um, yeah, the vast majority 
the founders created, innovated a new product based on um, you know personal need, based on personal experience, and generally involving some kind of health crisis. Yeah, I love uh, I love all of this. I need to one. I need to try these cookies because I'm uh, like a little cookie obsessed. Like I'll travel far and wide for for a good cookie. We can uh, ship a box up to Canada easily because they're um, they're shelf stable. They're ready baked and shelf stable. Okay, well, well, we'll follow up with this conversation. <laughs> yeah, that's easy. Consider it done. Couple but, of, a couple of cookie monsters cook, over here. Yeah, yes, sir. Um, nice. Just just kind of unpacking some of what you're saying. I love I love. Um, when you wake up to it, that capitalism can be activism. You know, you can vote with your dollar, you can vote with your money, whether it's a little or a lot, um, with what the world you want to see. So if you, you know, if you love Coca-Cola, now there's Olipop. If you love, you know, five cent, uh, you know, 25 cent candies, now there's Smart Sweets. You know, there's so many disruptors that are offering a a better alternative uh and you're championing a lot of these like even in the herbal space like looking at what uh you know lauren's doing with wooden spoon or tanya with rainbow like you know i have allergies right now i could go take a claritin but instead i'm going to take you know some wooden spoon product or i'm going to go for a run you know i could take uh some gatorade or something like that but instead i'm going to take cordyceps from from you know rainbow um yes. So as you become informed and educated uh, from all, you know, from the point of investing in businesses to the point of going to the grocery store, there's, there's capacity to, to be an activist and choose a better option that is better for your body, that is better for the planet, that is better for the community. And uh, it just that wasn't the case five years ago, by the way. We forget no, quickly. No, totally. Now there's like any number of products. It's almost saturated. Well, it's, it's, we're starting to hit, it's exciting because we're starting to hit that critical point where like, you know, Erewhon is like the trendiest place to go to just like people used to go to malls to look at, at clothing brands. And now people are going to Erewhon to like get the latest trendiest CPG products so they can share That's it. That's the their... showroom for CPG. Exactly. Yes. And it serves its role really well in the ecosystem. And you see all these celebrities, you know, that that used to collaborate and, and perfume are now kind of collaborating in, in ethical products. So, um, yeah. it's, ex- yeah, it gives hope for sure. Yes. Uh, kind of just listening to, to your journey and your approach, uh, it's, ex- it's exciting. I think it's, uh, lends to, um, you know, better futures. And even, even what you were saying, and if the, if the big companies, the Coca-Colas and the Pepsis and all these people, if they purchase these people, it's still a positive net effect because the consumer yeah. is creating a more ethical, regenerative, sustainable product that uh, if it goes from bottom up into these big companies, then it, the net positive is still going to be positive. That's right. And, you know, there's an element of like not letting perfection be the enemy of good, right? We got to yes. make progress. We got to make progress quickly. And it's happening. At this stage, like I worry less because it's happening whether you know, no matter what we think of it, we can sit there and criticize Air One. We can criticize getting healthy products to the 0.1% of the 1% all day. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what people think. It's happening. It starts there. That's part of the ecosystem. Then it makes its way through the specialty natural channel of Whole Foods and Sprouts and Gelson's. And as I explained further on down the chain to ultimately it's at Safeway and Walmart and Target. And look, if it gets adulterated along the way, like that'll happen. 
you know, one day we'll be in the Garden of Eden where everybody's eating perfectly, you know, food is medicine and balanced and we're in perfect harmony with nature. We're not there. We're in an era of like mass suffering and, you know, deep strife uh, in the world and every little modicum of progress that we can make towards getting people happier, healthier, um, more engaged, more involved in community, uh, feeling more empowered, like they have a vote with their dollar as you express like that's where all the benefit is right now. And that's not to say I don't get um, tired sometimes or disheartened sometimes, but you know, you can look to basically anywhere now for encouragement that, um, you know, what we're doing is having an impact and that there's people like us across every industry having an impact. And this is just the evolution of, of, you know, commerce. And right now, to your point, like there's any number of criticisms about capitalism out there. Sure. Uh, great. Go ahead. Criticize all you want. Right now it's got the system we're using and we're trying our hardest to, uh, you know, use it for good. So for those listening, you know, we have small business owners on, we have people that are, are, you know, creative thinkers that are going to be continuing to create new products and kind of hopefully drive these sectors. So for startups, you know, there's this the slow growth, do-it-yourself model, but there's also finding the angel investor, finding the VC firm, and and scaling faster with economies of scale with the right investors. So um, for those listening, if they're kind of in this sector and they're wanting to start to grow their, their business, start to grow their product, and they're at the, the phase where they want to start to, to pitch angels, investors, friends and family, whatever it might be, um, do you have any tips that you can share on how to successfully raise money, how to successfully pitch that people should bring into their own considerations? Yeah, definitely. There's no one way to do it, first of all. Yes. Uh, I will share a way to do it. But second of all, I don't know anything. I don't have all the answers. I can just share with you you know, what I've seen work so far through through my own lens. And to be clear, I've got a portfolio of 20 investments across my fund and personal investments, none of which have exited yet, right? So I can't tell you I've succeeded yet. I can't tell you I'm a great investor yet. We've got some things that are looking really good and that I'm hopeful uh, will, you know, go all the way through to exit, whether it's IPO or acquisition, but, you know, it's uh, time will tell. But here's what I'm seeing as the most natural path to, you know, business success, which is, as I mentioned earlier, business success now correlates directly with social impact. So if you're creating a food or supplement, or you're disrupting a category that is conventionally uh, not very healthy for the consumer or animals or the planet, um, there's a few different paths you can take to get to scalability, which leads to business success and, um, and uh, social impact. And so you know, a general template is to go and you can do it one of two ways. You can bootstrap it, fund it yourself in the very early days until you have a product that finds what is called product market fit. That's everything. Once you go and say, like, I would encourage all entrepreneurs to read at least like the cliff notes or distillation of the lean startup. It's a very tech focused book but it's about getting a minimal viable product to market. That's that's where the concept was kind of pioneered in this book that said, you know, don't work on perfecting the product. 
get something out there and test it and get feedback and continually iterate. And that's permeated, you know, entrepreneurship around the world, um, you know, for the last decade. But it really applies to food and uh, packaged food innovation, I would say. So get a product, whether you're making it in your kitchen uh, or, you know, whether you're growing it in your garden and using it as a supplement, get a product to market that you can test quickly. Friends and family first, then a broader audience, then, you know, kids if they're relevant, older people if they're relevant, people from different backgrounds with different palettes and find product market fit. Once you're confident, whether it's through just your own like personal um, split testing or, you know, parties that you're hosting, getting people to taste the product or selling at the farmer's market, that's really the best place to test. Once you get that critical feedback that you have something that the marketplace wants and you don't think, and you think that there's like a large enough addressable market to make, you know, to develop a scalable business around, then it's time to either capitalize it through friends and family, an angel round usually. There's not a lot of VCs um, uh, or other um, institutional investors who will invest at the pre-revenue stage, right? As you're kind of maybe, you know, sold the few tens of thousands of dollars of products at the farmer's market, you might be able to go out and find a VC like Vibrant, where we've invested in some, call it pre-seed investment rounds, like just to create, um, you know, just to create uh, the continuum for, for your viewers. It's like, you know, pre-seed, seed, series A, series B, series C. And there's not, there's not super tight parameters around what constitutes each, but you can kind of use your imagination and I'll give you like, you know, loose milestones to delineate between those types of rounds. But, you know, pre-seed to me is like um, a company called Supermush out of Venice comes to me and says, hey, we have a concept for a mushroom product. And this is going back three years ago when there weren't a trillion mushroom products. Uh, that uh, We have a format that we think is novel. In their case, it was mushroom mouth sprays. And um, I I was very familiar with like the mouth spray format because of beekeepers. You know, this is a, the number one selling product on Amazon, cold and flu. And it's just a tremendous product, propolis from the beehive. Now it's not vegan. So some of your audience might have issues with that, but it's very efficacious. It's very medicinal. And so um, they came to me and said, we want to do that with mushrooms. We want you to have like a meaningful dose of mushrooms in a sublingual format that quickly, you know, is absorbed by the body, be it cordyceps for endurance or lion's mane for brain health or reishi chaga for immunity. We'll have kind of a chill, a relax and a, sorry, a chill an immunity and an energy. So you have them for like kind of all, you know, various needs throughout your day and a super concentrated dosage of high quality fruity body, fruiting body mushrooms. And I thought, well, that's totally novel. Like we have tinctures and we have other things on the market, but that didn't exist. Okay. Like I can think about investing in this pre-market because I have a pretty unique lens given my experience with beekeepers and my, um, my just natural penchant for mushrooms and, and the amount of upside that exists in that market. So in that case, we kind of skip the product finding product market fit stage and we capitalize it. We put some real money behind it and took a big swing because the founders are, you know, incredible team. You have, um, 
you know, a woman who's just a force of nature and Ellie Shaper, who's like leading the charge on like psychedelic conversation and medicinal functional mushrooms, basically all things mushrooms at the age of, I don't know, 27, 28 background in finance and accounting, like just like the perfect threat. She's six feet tall and blonde, which is very helpful for, you know, um, delivering the message and then had a partner in Brian Friedman who like built and sold a tech kind of hybrid hardware software company one round of financing from Mark Benioff to exit, you know, it's like, okay, this is special. Let's put some real money behind this at the pre-seed stage. They don't need to prove to me product market fit. I'm going to take that risk that they will, that there is, you know, product market fit exists and then we can scale from there. And to their credit, you know, they sold a million and a half dollars of mushroom mouse sprays last year. I hope they don't mind me sharing that information publicly, but it's like, that's impressive, right? That's one we got right from the early go. And we've done some secret rounds of financing. Now we're releasing new products like, you know, mushroom mints. So taking on like the functional candy category, putting them into more um, familiar formats for a younger audience. They really, like there's a lot of mushroom companies catering to the the goop segment or the, you know, the more sophisticated, elevated, older segments. Well, this really resonates and lands well with like music festival goers. And so you have a whole other kind of demographic to target. And so that's an example of, um, you know, a company where it made sense to go big right away because the mushroom movement was already underway and there's not a lot of time to go sell at the farmer's market for two years, identify product market fit and then scale from there. Somebody else would just beat you to it. Um, I would say that's rare. You know, there are more opportunities like that that I've backed and, and I will continue to. But what's more common is what I described with, um, you know, Toto Cookies, where um, she just formulated this bench top product in her kitchen and was originally selling it as dough. And the dough was so clean and good. You could just eat it out of the carton. And like the feedback was people were like, I don't even cook these. I don't even bake the cookies. I just like eat the whole thing. And like, it was almost like it was a problem. It was too good. Like women were getting upset. Like I, I can't have this in my fridge anymore. You know, it disappears too quickly. And like, that's good feedback as an investor. And so this young woman comes to me and goes, Hey, I think I've got something here. Uh, I'm running, I've kind of put as much money as I can into it personally. Uh, Erwan likes it. This audience likes it. We're selling it online. You can see my five-star reviews. And, you know, I just had to try the product really and meet the founder who is just so endearing that you're like, okay, you know, we'll fund that. She had product market fit established. So hopefully that kind of gives you a sense of the two different starting nodes anyway, for like pre-seed funding, let's call it. And then at the seed stage, that's when you can start having conversations. You know, again, it's probably dominated by angel investors. But um, there's a number of VC funds, including mine, Vibrant Ventures, where we specialize in the seed stage. And that's where you have, and, and these are, you know, loose metrics, like they don't have to necessarily all apply, but just to like paint a picture, you're on track for a million dollars in sales. We call that a run rate. You did, you know, 80 to $100,000 of sales in your last month. And that's growth from the month prior, which is growth from the month prior, which is growth from the quarter prior. And there's a, you know, uh, there's a trend here. Product market fit's been established. Now you're kind of ready for scale. Whole Foods wants to pick you up. Now you need money for inventory financing uh, to build more inventory to fulfill these orders. And you need um, money for marketing. You gotta hire professionals who specialize in growth marketing on the internet and you know whatever the various functions are for these um, for these startup businesses. And that's like the seed stage. And you know, I can give you the just from my own personal perspective, my background's not in VC. And so I kind of have my own unique sample of observations here. But what we've done, um, we specialize in seed rounds. We lead seed rounds where 
we put in anywhere from $500,000 to a million dollars into a seed round where the company raises anywhere from $1 million to $3 million generally for the purposes I just described of business expansion. And, you know, we take 10% upwards of the company uh, in exchange for our investment. And I'll usually take a board seat or an option to the board seat with the, you know, with the agreement with the founder that we get along, we like each other. And they want somebody in their corner who they can count on for all things financing and kind of governance and help in that regard. And in exchange, I as like, I think having the, you know, hedge fund risk taking lens is like really serving those relationships well, because I'm like, hey, not only am I not going to be breathing down your neck and micromanaging and in your way. I expect you to take a lot of risk with this money. And that could be difficult for a founder who's so far been very judicious and careful and scrappy and, you know, uh, bootstrapping and using their money and their parents' money and their boyfriend's money to like build these companies. It can be a bit daunting to be like, no, you, you have two and a half million dollars in the bank now that you're expected to go and wager on growth for this company and this product you've built. You know, there's a lot of personal growth. I think that the founders experience at that stage. And then there's other dynamics they have to wrestle with, like, oh, you know, how do I feel about selling such a big chunk of my company to an outsider or giving a board seat where they're going to have some stewardship or, you know, whatever it might be. But that is the stage at which it makes sense to have. I think you still want a disproportionate number of angel investors at that seed stage. So again, you found product market fit, your product resonates, it's ready for scale across, you know, direct to consumer over the internet, Amazon your website, and then also through retail channels um, and go out and raise a chunk of capital, kind of angel dominant um, stage of investing with get a couple good VCs or one good VC on your um, cap table, as we call it. That's the list of, of investors who are capitalizing your business. And if you have that nice mix where you have, you know, some tech titan who individually invests in your company, uh, let's say like Ryan Holmes from Hootsuite who introduced us. Um, who's like backed a number of companies that have done tremendously well with his personal capital because he just believes in, you know, supporting ecosystems that are making the world a better place. Uh, and then you get some of those names and then you get maybe one VC that kind of validates everything because supposedly we do a lot of work and diligence and models and, and you know, like underwriting background checks, all those things. Um, then you really have something you can go out to everybody else with and say like, hey, we're raising 2 million bucks. We already got a million of it from some impressive people. And, uh, you know, how would you like to participate? And you can be a little bit picky and choosy if market conditions warrant. Right now, it's particularly tough to raise money. We can talk about that a little bit too. But in general, that's what that's what the process that I've witnessed over 20 observations has, has looked like at the seed stage. And I can't tell you what the Series A stage looks like because I'm just growing into that now. My companies that have really excelled since the time of those seed stage investments are now getting close to that $5 million in sales mark and preparing to launch their, their Series A's, uh, their Series A rounds where they can take, you know, they might be raising like $5 million at a $25, $30 million valuation to really start building, you know, to get more vertically integrated where they start producing their own product, perhaps in-house as a opposed to using like an outside co-manufacturer or they're even building facilities or they're expanding their office presence, whatever the need might be for the business. Uh, and look, that remains TBD. I'm going to launch Vibrant Ventures Fund 2 to specialize 
at the the Series A level. And you know, luckily, I have my friends Mark McTavish and Brendan Brazier who've kind of done this before. Brendan launched, uh, he built and sold uh, Vega Protein. You know, in what was the kind of the first really big exit in in the vegan product market. And so to have him as like a business partner and that we invest in things together. And then also I'm invested in his um, beverage company, clean alcohol company called Pulp Culture, which just makes the most like incredible fermented beverage, uh, functional fermented beverage, like to have the expertise of people like that, you know, at my disposal, as we get into these series A financings, one of which I did with his, his company, um, you know, one-on-one cider pulp culture, um, you start to get a feel for what an ideal round looks like there. And I don't have to look like all these other VCs. I can do things my own way. I have a very differentiated lens coming from the world of, you know, from the hedge fund world versus the VC world. I don't necessarily have the same checklist that the VCs have. I do co-invest with a number of VCs who I like and admire because they've, they share a similar mission uh, or they have a, um, you know, they have a similar investment lens as me or a complementary investment lens. There's three or four VCs that I do that with, but in general, I kind of stay out of that ecosystem so as to stay in my own lane and not get, you know, kind of caught up in the group think. And, um, you know, I don't need to pat my own back, but now that we're in a part of like the market uh, of the business cycle effectively, where you're seeing a lot of creative destruction, like for a long time when money was free and I won't get technical, but let's just say the, the federal reserve spigot is open dollars for everybody, dollars for everything. A lot of companies that would fail under normal circumstances don't fail. We call those zombie companies. You see them at, you know, the most mature end of the spectrum, big companies. You just look like the Japanese economy for a good example of, of what that looks like. Uh, and then, you know, we started embarking into that territory in the US and then the Fed shut the spigot. Inflationary pressures made it such that they had to pay attention to that component of their mandate. They turn off the spigot and it's just so binary. It's so night and day, dramatically different. The moment of loose monetary conditions to tight monetary conditions, you know, it's literally night and day difference. Now, all of a sudden, you've got a lot of companies struggling to raise money. You have good companies failing now, but for the most part, all the bad companies that were getting funded when they probably shouldn't have um, are starting to go away. And that's, you know, it's not great for the people, the investors, the founders, the people who poured their money and time into these businesses, but it is a necessary component of this capitalist system in which we operate. And that is the creative destruction process. And so it feels bad, even for the companies that are surviving and raising capital right now, it can feel really tenuous and difficult out there. And they might not have a lot of visibility on their next quarter even, but as we emerge from this back to a period of growth, back to a period of like more available capital, I would say right now is one of the hardest periods for capital raising, like specifically today, as we've just coming off the back of these, you know, regional bank failures that were really tied to the VC world, startup world. That was kind of the nail in the coffin, I think, for a lot of startups raising capital, um, not just in tech, but within CPG. And um you know, as we kind of emerge from this, and it could get worse from here, it could get better. But let's say once we start to trough and emerge from this, you're going to see these companies, like a mushroom company is a great example. If things didn't correct, you might have tens of thousands of competitors. But when market conditions or the business cycle turns and you get this period of creative destruction, uh, it prevents new competition from starting and it kills off other competition within the category. And those who remain uh, either because of luck or superior product or superior execution with capital on their balance sheet to weather the storm, 
they're in a really, really strong position uh, to participate in what I believe is like, in the case of mushrooms, a long-term secular trend. We're just in a short-term cyclical downturn in, in the business cycle. Um, and so I hope that answers your question for, you know, um, entrepreneurs out there or aspiring entrepreneurs out there who are thinking about launching their own product. Like, don't let the fact that right now is such a difficult um, time to raise capital. Don't let that discourage you. In fact, that's probably the best time to get started. Like you wouldn't necessarily want to have everything on a silver platter right now where you're ready to present it to investors and be like, hey, I found product market fit in a category where I'm going to own it and everything's kind of laid out for us. Now I just need the money. That's a tough position to be in. And those are the companies that I'm investing in right now. That's where the opportunity lies. Um, you don't want to be predatory and be like, okay, you know, I'll steal a piece of your business for a small check. That's just not the way we operate when you're an impact investor investing with predominantly like women and minority investors. It wouldn't be a great look. Me as a guy coming from the hedge fund world being like, okay, I'm going to go scoop up all, you know, like a vulture, scoop up all these companies. It looks much more like, okay, I can't help everybody. Let's go find the ones that have real viability, real proof of product market fit that I can have a high degree of confidence will seize a particular category and, and succeed and expand. And let's do a fair deal where we can get a nice chunk of capital from this company at a fair price. That's good for me and my investors, good for the founder. And let's take like a real swing at this. I like shooting for home runs. I don't want to be timid in, in our approach. Um, and so now's the time as an investor to focus on those businesses, but as the entrepreneur, as the startup, you know, call it product innovator who, often by default just becomes a CEO. They're totally different skill sets, right? So you can imagine the learning curve um, for like, imagine a young herbalist where she's like her whole life is herbalism and she's learning all about herbalism. And now she's getting a really steep um, learning curve in entrepreneurship. Like that's Lauren Haynes from Wooden Spoon, Herb, Wooden Spoon Herbs. Like how incredible that somebody who is just such a remarkable like farmer and herbalist becomes like, an exceptional business operator and effectively risk taker, taking capital from outside sources and applying it towards an area that she thinks will grow, picking the products she thinks will grow, picking the avenues for distribution that she thinks will grow and becoming, you know, a CEO and business operator um, from, you know, the roots of an herbalist. It's just an awesome, like heroic journey to watch and be a part of. And I think she would say it requires like the right support and the right partners of which she has several. Yeah. Uh, it's it's so fascinating, like hearing hearing the stories that you're sharing and and just the the wisdom and kind of guidance for people who are maybe on this path and on this journey. But I, I just think it's so cool. I just want to reflect back, like listening to you speak. I'm like, what a what a neat space that you personally occupy, Jarrett, where you have this history. You know, you've kind of been on the trading floor. You've seen you've seen that. You have that experience. And you bring that with you, but then also like through this kind of, you know, you touched on it, that, that this transformational couple of years of like practicing yoga and, you know, having this almost like pendulum swing experience, like you say, leaving, leaving the, leaving the trading floor when the stock closes, changing your business suit for, you know, the, the yoga, the yoga attire and like spending time working, you know, on your interior life and all that and how you bring that into what you're doing now. It's this, it's this unlikely marriage of these two things. And I think that you and Vibrant Ventures like provide such a unique, 
um, role in the world of helping find these companies and these people that are doing, you know, amazing things that may be overlooked because it's smaller or maybe it's niche, but your ability to kind of bring your experience and then who you are into that to say, yo, we want to, we want to work with you because yes, like the, the mushroom mouth spray, I'm into it. I get it. I see it. And I know that this is, this is going to be big. And, and, you know, I just think of, uh, people who didn't have that openness or have that experience that you had, you know, through, through yoga and that kind of other, that other sense of like, you know, to use the language of kind of like waking up to these different realities in the world. Yeah. Uh, those, those people, they don't get the opportunity. And then it's like, not only is it just a good business, but then the ripple effect of all of the individuals that purchase those products and use it and have their own meaningful experience of like feeling more energized or feeling more in tune, you know, as a result of using these products. Like, I just think it's such a, when I was listening to you speak, I'm like, this is so cool that you do this. This, and you give yeah, people the opportunity you. not only to success, have success in business, but for people like us to to try these incredible products. Like it's just a really cool moment, I think, and thing that you're doing. Thank you for saying that. And I think six months ago, I would have told you, like, yeah, I hope it really does reach and touch a lot of people. But at this stage, like we're seeing it happen. And like, as I'm sure you guys experience in, in your endeavors as entrepreneurs and podcast hosts, like it's never ending growth. Like it's really funny. You like you point to that transition phase that I went through of, you know, get, you know, for a phase, I was almost kind of monk-like in my, in my spiritual and yoga practice. And, uh, and I'm much more of a, you know, traditional householder at this point, let's say in, in the way that I live, but it's like, you're always going to be confronted with growth. It's never going to be comfortable. This idea that we get to a space where like, oh, I finally made it. And like, now I know who I am. I know what I believe and I know what I stand for. And I have the skill set and I invest like, okay, we're good. Now we chill. There's always brand new period of growth and like something that I'm experiencing now that's coming with some of the momentum and success we have with Vibrant is like, we have some, uh, you know, cool investors now where we're attracting like the Hollywood crowd, the, um, you know, all these people with influence and platform uh, which I think is a really good sign for the ecosystem as a whole. They want to get involved and use that platform both to, you know, profit from their likeness in many cases, and also do it supporting products that are having the positive ripple effect that you alluded to. And it's happening. Like, it's just, you know, you can just see it every day, a new announcement about a new celebrity partnering with a new brand that stands for ethical commerce. Uh, that's really, really encouraging. And it forces me like, I'm 40 now and um, I would have thought, uh, I would have preferred by this stage to just be totally behind the scenes. Like, okay, I'll invest the capital. And if I do well, I'll make a bunch of money and I'll support companies doing well. And it's just like kind of the perfect, you know, dream job. And then I'll just kind of live a quiet life, um, you know, over here in California and I'll surf. And uh, the reality is, is like, life doesn't give you what keeps you comfortable. It's forcing me like, I have to go to these types of like, you know, networking schmoozy events. I find myself almost back at like similar to the things I would go to when I used to work on Wall Street, where I'm like, oh man, like I'm here again with people's name tags on here. Like the fuck happened? You know, I'm taking a full, you know, full circle back. But um, at this stage, I have a sense of humor about it. It's not necessarily easy, but I go, okay, I see. This is, it's just going to be perpetual growth and and some form of discomfort and evolution and, and forced surrender effectively. And uh, I'm grateful for it all. Beautiful. Love it. Um, to maybe take a bit of an esoteric pivot here. Um, I've heard, Time. I've heard, I've heard people kind of speak and I, I believe it to be true myself um, speaking as, 
of currency is energy, uh, where our energy goes, our currency flows. Um, is, is this an experience uh, that uh, you found to be true? Currency is energy. Um, do you bring your, your spiritual, I mean, you've, you've been very mission driven with who you invest in. Have you brought in kind of any of your, your spiritual essence or your energy as currency into, into the financial world? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it would be very difficult to refute that at this stage. And like, again, even if we went back to when I first launched the fund and call it like, you know, 18 months ago, um, it might be a slightly more um, bold take or something to say like, yeah, I really do incorporate my, um, you know, my spiritual views or my spiritual practices or my outlook on life uh, into my investing. But like at this stage, like, I'm shocked. I'll talk to a 60 year old billionaire in Hong Kong uh, who's built an enterprise in like industrial and enterprises or like an industrial, you know, industry. And uh, they will want to talk about, you know, the tenets of non-harm. And I guess it shouldn't be so surprising if it's somebody in Hong Kong, but, you know, like they'll want to talk about, you know, Buddhist tenets in their investing and stuff like that. And you can't look being in the epicenter of it, in a way in uh, Southern California, like I can't meet with an investor who doesn't want to share their um, spiritual motivations or, um, you know, call it uh, ethical, ethical, spiritual motivations for investing in something that's just so near and dear to everybody as food and food is medicine. And what does that look like for you? How do you kind of embody that experience? Yeah, I think I'm just very open at this stage. Like you get to a point where don't really need anything from anyone at this stage. It's not to say that I'm like totally independent and 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 set. That's not the case at all. But I don't need to convince anybody. Like a lot of my time is spent raising money from investors, right? And I've just been so lucky that um, because of the impact and mission-driven nature of what we're doing, um, we attract a certain type of introduction. And, um, you know, I probably could and might be serving my uh, portfolio and companies better if I just went out and like preached from the mountaintop and, and took like a shotgun approach to marketing. It's just not my nature, especially not at this age and stage. Um, and so, you know, I think they say the average, I don't know whether it's a startup founder or VC manager, but I imagine there's similar journeys. You have to have 60 conversations for every check that comes in. And it's probably like 10X that today because of the circumstances I described around raising money in this environment. Maybe you have to have 600 conversations for one check. Like I would never have even launched this business. Like I know my limitations and what I can and can't do. That's just not something I would ever sign up for. And so I've been very fortunate that you know, I have around 50 investors in my fund and I probably had 75 investor conversations, total anomaly. And it speaks only to the fact that, um, you know, going back to your question, it was very much rooted in spirituality for me. And I don't use that term necessarily when speaking with prospective investors, because you want to show them like, I'm a very competent money manager. I take good risk with your capital in search of reward while pursuing mission and impact. That's the whole pitch. That's all they need to hear. 
I don't need to tell them about my experiences with plant medicines that, you know, changed my lens on life and connected me to God. Now, if they want to talk about that, I'm open to it. It's not something that I need to hide at this stage in my life. And particularly because it's just becoming more and more common in the zeitgeist. But um, I was so lucky to have the early backers I did who introduced me to the investors um, who came my way that it's, you know, it's nothing short of divine itself, like further lending to the idea that, you know, whether you're spiritual or not, this is all divine. And this is all, you know, underpinned by something much greater than us. And a big part of the job is recognizing that we can't control any of it. And the more we are to surrender to it, put out there what it is that we would, we think we would like to happen, but being open to what does happen for that is generally going to be perfect. Well, that's awesome. Not your, not your typical investing advice, but I think you're absolutely right. Like if we are not aligned with our purpose and kind of like the divine flow, we're going to be working against the grain and yeah, you know, you, I think you nailed it. Like that's so, that's so refreshing to hear from a perspective of like, you know, where, where a lot of times in finance and stuff like spirituality is stripped out of it and it's brass tacks, like show me the numbers. Is it a good, is it a good risk? Should we do it or not? But to say, no, it's, it's all yeah. wrapped up and together and, and to, to bring your whole self into it is, uh, is so cool. My teachers would tell me whether you choose to recognize it or not, it is there. And in fact, it's not only there, it is everything, right? That is kind of, look, we're doing we're interacting with others under the auspices of business is what I would say. Mm, I love that. And well, I read a lot about your background, just so you know. So I figured that that might be a line of questioning that we get into. And I, I do really look forward to meeting you guys in person and just, you know, continuing this discussion offline. Yes. Yes. Well, as we kind of gear towards wrapping this conversation up, uh, you know, hopefully part one of uh, continued conversation, um, as someone that's so immersed in the CPG space and the wellness space, um, I'd love to kind of go crystal ball for a moment and, and just uh, ask you what you what you feel the, the trends in the CPG sector and the wellness sector, sector are going to be for, you know, the next 2023-24 kind of segment. Yeah, um, I can tell you where I'm focused. I don't necessarily know what the big trends will be. And there's probably... I'm probably now that my companies are maturing from like the C stage to the series A stage, I'm going to be a little bit um, less ahead of the curve than I used to be. Like if I told you, you know, that I was investing in mushroom companies when I started doing that three or four years ago, that'd be really like avant-garde ahead of the curve. Like, Oh, let me tell you all about functional mushrooms. You know, they're rooted in traditional Chinese medicine, but they're coming to the West and everybody's gonna be taking them. Well, fast forward to now, they're kind of here, like they're in every Whole Foods. I think they're even in more mainstream, you know, grocery stores relative to, to Whole Foods. And so that's kind of happened. But because I, the, my business has matured and my investing has matured along with those companies, I'm still very focused on, you know, functional medicinal mushrooms. I'm, I'm very focused on like the easiest way to marry investor returns with impact right now is high velocity categories. So I have investments in like, for example, this company Akua, where we are making, um, we're replacing meat products with kelp based products. And it's just the most delicious, incredible, um, you know, meat substitute that you can find. It's basically just kelp, quinoa and mushrooms with various spices put into a format that can replicate um, either ground beef or beef patties. We have the most delicious crab cakes because there's a natural umami flavor. That is a long-term, you know, 
overhaul of a segment, right? God bless beyond an impossible. I don't eat it because I like to eat whole foods, non-formulated, no Frankenstein type stuff, but God bless them for, you know, displacing animal agriculture and taking a company from startup all the way to, you know, New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ listing and IPO. So um, what we're doing with these types of investments like Akua is we're taking on an entire category and we're educating people. Look, this kelp grows two meters per day. It sequesters X amount of carbon. And, um, you know, the founder of this company, Courtney Boyd Myers, who's just a behemoth, she helped build like the Summit Series group. So she's got a natural skill set for community building education. And now she's got just this most delicious product that's making its way through like celebrity chef restaurant channels. She's done a collaboration with Nickelodeon and SpongeBob, like talk about being unafraid to use the existing infrastructure to change food. Like she's doing it on the front lines. I would encourage you to, to have her on the podcast as well to share her story. But that's an example of something where I'm heavily invested. It's one of the biggest investments in the fund. I sit on the board of the company and I'm going to be with her through thick and thin. And it's going to take us five years or a decade to bring help into the mainstream and public consciousness because we believe in it so much and, and its impacts on, on potential impacts and benefits for the food system. Now, those investments have been made and they take the bulk of my everyday time. Where I'm focusing now on kind of refining and rounding out the portfolio, and maybe this speaks to, to where the trends are, I don't know, but it's the trends is, is kind of, I see them within my narrow world, is high velocity snacks. Moku mushroom jerky. Like, you go to a 7-Eleven in Thailand and they have Jack Link's beef jerky, you know? And again, I don't like to take this approach, but just imagine the amount of like animal torture that that's contributing to worldwide. Okay, if we can displace that with an oyster mushroom that's been like soaked in teriyaki sauce, that seems like a very, um, that just seems like low hanging fruit in, in both the ba battle for animal rights and for human health and for like topsoil and gut biome. These things are all one, they're all the same problem, all be solved the same way or same variety of ways. And so finding these things that people consume on a daily basis, maybe more than one of on a daily basis, excuse me, like cookies, uh, like um, clean alcohol, like Brendan and Mark are doing at Pulp Culture, um, clean candy, I'm really deep in right now. Um, ice cream, the different formats of frozen dessert that we're doing with, you know, vegan, gluten-free, um, cookie-covered ice cream that are just like, you know, it's a new echelon of taste. It's going to increase the town. It's not like it's zero-sum where people quit eating conventional ice cream and eat these. Like, it's just going to grow the whole frozen desserts market because it's so delicious. You can picture them passed around on a tray at like a white glove event. You can picture them, you know, at a tailgate barbecue in the back of a truck. <laughs> These things are pretty ubiquitous when they taste taste that delicious. So to me, I won't, you know, I can't really go out on a limb and tell you any kind of crazy trend that I'm foreseeing uh, as really viable. I'll share some that that I'm seeing, you know, uh, being shared with me as a prospective investor because um, they're kind of interesting. But um, I will say that it's going to be more of the same because there's so much um, uh, infrastructure built around new food products, business school case studies, go to market, marketing, you know, D2C versus retail, all these technical elements of like overhauling food. What gets lost in the shuffle, so to speak, is does the product taste delicious? 
That's the part that often gets overlooked. It has to taste phenomenal for people to part with their hard-earned dollars after tax to take it off the shelf, take it home, eat it, and then more importantly, repeat purchase it, come back for more. A lot of products will get people once with cashy marketing, um, a good mission, um, quality ingredients. If it doesn't taste delicious, it won't command the repeat purchase. And so, you know, as far as trends go, that is where we're squarely focused. Velocity, because, you know, we need to make money for investors and um, and the highest velocity categories. Uh, I would say almost all of the time are exactly where we can have the most impact on on human health. If you can keep people from eating Skittles and Chips Ahoy cookies and eat something that's like cleaner instead, um, you know, the impact you can have is pretty, pretty immediate. And then as far as like trends in that I'm seeing in the industry, um, a lot of people are not a lot of people, but I'm starting to see um, like so mushrooms have become quite popular already. CBD obviously had a huge run. I never invested in that. Um, mushrooms are very popular now, took the torch from CBD. Uh, now I'm starting to see things like, um, that even things that I'm not that familiar with, like Kana and uh, Kava and Freedom and these kind of, is weird that I think they all start with Ks. Um, and they're all like, you know, these kind of more, slightly more obscure, at least in the West, um, you know, plants that have been used as, you know, supplements or medicines or recreation in other parts of the world. Like, I don't know how those will go. I haven't made any investments in in those fields yet. Um, I know people who are a little more, um, let's call it uh, experimental than I am, who are like cutting personal checks to those types of businesses, thinking that they could be the next, um, you know, household staple that's just at this stage unknown to, to most people in the West. But um, I suspect we'll see some, you know, category winner emerge in those types of products. Um, but more and more, I think, you know, the real lasting trends are just stripping the cane sugar out, stripping the factory farmed animal products out and stripping um, additives, preservatives and natural flavors, which, you know, we never know what that's truly representing, stripping that stuff out of the um, ingredient labels. I love it. So returning to, to the source, getting cleaner, getting closer to how kind of nature intended things, uh, better for our bodies, better for the planet, better for the long-term health of all these things. Um, Jared, I just want to, I want to thank you. This has been such a illuminating conversation. Um, I'm continually fascinated and obsessed and excited by the CPG space and the wellness space. So, um, I thoroughly enjoyed sharing this conversation with you. I can, I can, through Zoom, I can, you know, feel your excitement and your passion for these products. And I can't wait to, you know, try a kelp burger or try a, a Toto cookie and, you know, we'll get you guys all these products to try. Maybe you can do like live taste testing on air or something like oh, that. And we want the real feedback. Thick absolutely. Skin and, absolutely. You know, the name of the game is, is getting these things to like peak performance. So your feedback's very welcome. All right, we're into it. Um, it's funny, we just did, um, for our past episode, we, we celebrated the episode with some fresh durian. So we'll celebrate your episode with uh, awesome. some of these products. And, um, it'll smell much better than fresh durian, I promise. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Dean, do you want to land this one for us? Yeah, sure. Uh, just to echo Zach, thanks so much for your time, your expertise, uh, your passion, enthusiasm for what you do is just evident. And I think that is is so awesome and i'm grateful for you uh, and the space you take up just helping people like i said before um, with incredible products just getting them to market and 
um, you know, average people like us being able to just consume those and, and make better choices. So thank you for doing that. Um, we ask every guest on our podcast this kind of like closing question. And so I'll pose it to you. Um, Zach and I, when we were coming up with this idea of the podcast, we, you know, we, different ideas of names floated around for what are we going to call this thing? And one day on a run, Zach said to me, he's like, I think I've got the name. Let, what do you think of a little more good? And, you know, in terms of like, product testing, I was just like, that's it. Like that's the name. It just resonated so deeply. It's something yeah. that we, we love to do. We, we, we're all about, you know, creating more good in our world. Um, and we wanted to have people like you on, you know, to have these types of conversations and ultimately ask you, what does that phrase mean to you a little more good? You know, I wasn't prepared for this question, but I think I've, I've got the ace answer here. Um, I'm so focused on not letting perfection be the enemy of good. Like I naturally have a bit of like perfectionist tendency, which is not like, that's not a humble brag. It's a bad thing. It's paralyzing. Like it's, hard, it's scary to start things if you kind of are afraid of trial and error or, you know, failure. Like it takes a lot of work if you're if you're if you have a bit of that in your psyche. It takes a lot of work to start to view like, uh, the world through a lens of there is no failure. It's all growth. And like, that's great to know academically, but it's still very hard to like endeavor and start things and try things. And, you know, just basic things. Like I want to challenge my brain and learn to play an instrument or whatever. Like it's very hard to pick it up and get started. And so to me, uh, that's just a mantra that's been like resonating with me a lot lately is don't let perfection be the enemy of good, like stumble through things don't be afraid to mess up, feel that maybe like all the growth and all the kind of um, future happiness is rooted in stumbling right now and feeling that awkward frustration or difficulty or embarrassment or whatever it is. And I've nowhere near mastered it. I'm just embarking on this, you know, new uh, outlook at the age of 40. But I think the name of your podcast, I hadn't pieced it together until right now, kind of lands perfectly with with that. So thank you guys for the work you're doing. Of course. Yeah. No, that's excellent. I love, I love that. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Jarrett. Uh, we're excited to continue to follow uh, where you go with Vibrant Ventures, where you go personally. And uh, yeah, just grateful for the space that you're, that you're holding. Thank you. See you in Vancouver soon. Yes. Thanks, Jarrett. All right, friends, there you have it amazing conversation with an amazing individual doing really really good work in the world you know like you said uh, at the beginning zach we often think of like investors and you know like uh, capitalism is this like evil entity that we have to overcome and i think that jared is someone who's showing that you can subvert the whole system within it by doing good for human health planetary health and you know what we got to pay our bills and so this is like this interesting, beautiful menage of all of those methods. Yes. I often think, you know, capitalism, as much as I want to run away and, and live off the grid, you know, with my feet on the earth and the sun on my eyes, you know, we live within a, a capitalistic world and um, let's use those tools to improve this place. We yeah. don't need to, to fight against them or, or make it good or bad. Let's work within it to to create the world that we want to be a part of. And uh, you know, I think Jared is 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 truly doing that. He's he's amplifying small business and creating space for for so much goodness within this world, within this space. So I really love this conversation. I'm excited to see where he goes with his business and where he takes 
the businesses that he's investing in with them. I, I think it's exciting, and uh, I think it shows, you know, a, a positive side of capitalism that we can all participate in, and it allows us to be activists daily within within the constraints of, of a capitalistic world. So uh, we get to vote with how we use our dollars, and I think that's one of the most powerful things we, we can do. So use your money towards uh, things you believe in, and uh, you know that might just domino into a world that uh, you're excited to be a part of. Yeah. All right. Beautiful. Thanks for making it this far. Leave us a review. Give us a like wherever you listen to your podcast. Share it with a friend. We appreciate all of it. Support the show sponsors, AG1 and Caldera Lab. We appreciate them. We appreciate you. Until next time, stay good, y'all. Peace.